You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Just trying to make the introduction as awkward as possible. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. There are some new folks. We're honored that you're here. Uh, some folks from Baylor that have come over. We're grateful. Uh, well, we are at the beginning of an academic year, uh, still in the midst of an uncertain pandemic. Stress levels are at an all-time high, and um, the lectionary, not really caring about any of that, went ahead and offered me Song of Solomon as a preaching choice this morning. And I thought, well, you know, it's been a long time since I got in trouble. Why not go for it? So um, we're going to do it today. Uh, along those lines, I sent out a note to parents of folks um, that have kids that are... Sh- sh- 10 years old on up that are in the sanctuary. Um, I would say this sermon's PG-13. I do intend to talk about sex. So um, Kieran, our youth pastor, is providing an alternative worship formation moment in the youth room back here. Uh, If you would like to uh, have your child go join them, that's an option. Otherwise, if you want to roll the dice with us, who knows? We'll see what HR says on Monday. So, um, all right. Uh, I should say this. Maybe this you'll find is a more compelling reason for why I, um, I have picked this sermon. I think uh, one of my favorite sermons, top five for sure, was uh, my, uh, preached by my pastor in college, and it, it was over this text. And um, if anything, that moment made me intimidated to return to Song of Solomon, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. Uh, let's start here. Song of Solomon, Song of Psalms, call it what you like. Uh, Solomon actually has nothing to do with the book, is a book that is about sex, which is fascinating. Um, I'm going to tell you about how we ended up with this in the Old Testament. Um, I found this in the historical writings of Bolsephus. We haven't heard from Bolsephus in a while. Um, first century chronologer of Israel's fictional history. Um, there's a committee of Jewish rabbis sitting together, putting together a syllabus, uh, the Hebrew Bible, call it what you want, uh, canon of Hebrew scripture. And uh, one of them says, hey, what do you want to require for, for reading? And um, first rabbi says, you need Torah. And they all nod because... That's obvious. Then somebody else says, well, you probably need a good bit of history. And then a third rabbi says, and two versions of the same history that sometimes compete with each other. There's like, here, here. It's like British Parliament style in the room. How about the Psalms and other ads? Maybe the most significant Old Testament theological book? Sure, they, they add that. Um, then they decide, let's just make it a whole section on wisdom literature. Somebody says, you got to have the prophets. A second ad, you've got to have the prophets. And then there was some additional discussion about the Maccabees in First Enoch and these books that showed up in the Apocrypha and make our Catholic brothers and sisters uh, Bible just a little bit thicker than our Protestant alternative. And then the nominees became less obvious. The discussion really got into the weeds. Somebody suggested an idea for a cookbook, maybe bread making. Somebody else said, maybe we should have a book on, on dissecting animals. But then somebody else said, no, nobody reads Leviticus as the way it is. A third idea surfaced, a definitive answer on the free will predestination debate, but they all decided it was too much fun watching people get angry about that, so they kept it out. Then another rabbi, Marv Hershkovitz, with equal part cynicism and a glass of whiskey, from the back of the room yells, what about sex? Everybody likes to read about sex. Everybody got quiet. It was the first time nobody spoke. Finally, one of the elder rabbis said, well... I don't know about that. Other rabbis, when they thought they had discerning eyes on them, nodded in agreement. Then Hershkowitz had an idea. He said a vote then, anonymous. So they handed out 301 pieces of parchments. They could write down yay or nay simply. But before that, there was a hearty debate, mostly uh, Hershkowitz versus the elder rabbis. They had a, a spirited exchange, then the vote was taken. The final count was given. The decision to include a book about sex passed 300 to 1. 
That's how it goes, isn't it? It's the one topic that nobody wants to talk about, but everybody wants to talk about. I guess that's not entirely true, though. Our, our uh, culture is actually pretty fluent in the conversation of sex. It's happening in adolescent sleepovers. It's happening in college dorm rooms. It's happening in women's book clubs. It's happening at happy hour. It's happening in the se sexual education offered by all of our favorite television shows. The only place that it's not happening is in evangelical churches. And if we're honest, even progressive churches. And why is that? A few years ago, uh, Stephen Greenblatt wrote an article for The New Yorker entitled How St. Augustine Invented Sex. While certainly not a peer-reviewed uh, journal, uh, it's a pretty credible source, The New Yorker, and at least in storytelling. And um, it certainly tells the story of the popular interpretation and perception of Augustine and his interlocutors. Uh, Augustine, in Confession and in other places, spells out his dizzying sexual history. Uh, that includes liberation, it includes frustration and it includes condemnation. He is a man who went on a theological quest to make sense of his desires and his licentious attitudes. And he found coherence in the story of Adam and Eve um, and more specifically their expulsion from the garden and the consequent um, development of, of the uh, doctrine of original sin. I will say, I think there's some confusion about Augustine, even in the academy, about his hermeneutics with specific regards to Genesis and more particularly the primeval history. That's the first 11 chapters. We have the story of creation, fall, Cain and Abel, Noah, and eventually uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, and I say that because he wrote a book called The Literal, or the Literal Reading of Genesis, and it was a polemical, polemical tool at, uh, aimed at combating his Manichaean counterparts. Um, Augustine did not, for example, believe in a liberal seven-day creation. He did, however, believe in a literal Adam and Eve and that they were uh, figures in his mind who started this story of sexual corruption. Eve ate of the fruit and Adam uh, with her. And so in doing so, they started this long and painful process of passing down original sin through intercourse. Um, this, in part, explains the theological why in our tradition, why we have a virgin birth for Jesus. Jesus was conceived not through lust like you and me, uh, this is Augustine. This is not me throwing theology at you. But through uh, Mary's sacrificial yes, so though uh, he did not inherit Mary's soma, that's the Greek word for her body, or while well, he did inherit that, he did not inherit her sarx, which is the word Paul used to describe flesh in Romans 8. Um, so you can see how uh, certain contours of our theological tradition did not exactly set us up for uh, success sexually as, as contemporary Christian believers. Um, as for now, some of us, probably the majority of us in this room, are products of purity culture. I'll be honest. I remember going to the talk where somebody glued the paper together, continued to talk while it dried off, and then pulled it apart and said, oh, look at your soul. Doesn't it just look filthy? And then um, I remember the illustration where they handed around the, the cup of whatever, and everybody spit into it, and they get done and said, who wants to take a drink? Um, I remember the purity rings and the pledge cards, not because I did those, but because I heard about them when I got to college. Um, and I have to tell you, none of that stuff worked on me. I did not make it to marriage. Um, I started dating my wife in high school, and the one thing led to another. I stopped talking to my accountability partner, and pretty soon I was trotting towards home plate. And I will tell you, it might be because I'm an emotionally impressed Enneagram 3, but after my relationship with carnal knowledge changed, I kept waiting for the evangelicals to be right. I was waiting for the onslaught of shame and disappointment to catch up with me, but it never did. In fact, I was kind of thinking, that was pretty great. Um, speaking of trotting around 
home plate. I'm not sure if the basis is still a euphemism, but I'll tell you this story. Um, one of my good friends, Dr. David Wilhite, professor of early Christianity, was asked to uh, speak at like a disciple now. I didn't grow up with those. Like a kid's, a youth weekend, wild revival thing, whatever. And um, he's there and, you know, they asked him, he's a younger guy at the time, and he's like, you know, I'm going to be edgy. They asked the young guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet the kids where they're at. I'm going to talk about the bases. And he says, you know, kids, you, you might be going to first base and that's fine. You know, some of you might even go to second base. I would do that very discerningly, but third base, that's not a good idea. And home plate is certainly off of the table. And as he's, he's giving this talk, these youth are just really getting riled up and excited and he's really feeling it. So he's getting more and more into it. Meanwhile, uh, the, the faces of the, the youth uh, volunteer parents and the, the youth pastor himself go sheet white. Uh, They're not at all enthusiastic, and, but David still, he can't believe the, the reaction he's getting. And so um, he finishes like the, the last prayer. He says, amen. And the youth pastor makes a beeline for him up in the front. And he says, David, I don't think the bases mean to these kids what they meant to you when you were a kid anymore. We've got a really big problem on our hand. That's the problem, isn't it? Language evolves, cultural norms change. Um, I'll tell you what, now if you read up on what's going on at first base, you like need a hazmat suit or something like that. Um, I watched that show, The Politician. Those Gen Zers, they're not a bashful bunch. Um, now I say this without judgment or expectation, but when I do premarital counseling, or I should say coaching, I'm not a therapist. When I talk to people about what marriage might be like, we cover six things. We talk about family systems, faith, finances, communication, children, and sex. And the way I do that talk now is a lot different than the way I did that 14 years ago. I grew up in a world where Baywatch was wild. Kids have grown up now in a world where like Game of Thrones is average. We have come a long way from purity culture. Um, I will say, because I began to notice in my own journey over the years in counseling and other things and talking to people that I, I did in my own shoes feel pretty immune to what I suspected were the detrimental effects of purity culture. So I sent myself on a reading journey to better understand this. So I read Nadia Boltz's Shameless, and I discovered that, no surprise, purity culture is something that disproportionately has damaged females in Christian faith. The other thing I discovered is that uh, among moral norms Christians might speak to, we have a disproportionate concern with people's sexual choices. Then I read atheist anthropologist Helen Fisher's Anatomy of Love, subline uh, A Natural History of Mating Marriage and Why We Stray. And um, what I discovered is that hu humans intuitively all over the world, no matter what their context, um, all understand that sex is a powerful experience. And then I, I listened to Peggy Orenstein do several podcasts and give interviews after her book, uh, Boys and Sex. And I learned that part of the universal problem is that we don't pe teach people to speak about their sexual choices and experiences either plainfully or plain, plain or meaningfully. And um, so I want to pair two thoughts with you from that experience. The first of them is uh, from one end of the spectrum. I was a kid in the early 90s, probably preteen, 14, 15, I don't remember. Um, I was watching the 90s sitcom Friends, and it's a dialogue between Monica and Richard, who's like, what, the dentist played by Tom Selleck? Is that ringing a bell, anybody? Okay. And uh, Monica says... So we can be friends and have sex, question mark. And his response is, sure, it'll just be something we do together like racquetball. That is a quintessentially casual posture towards sex. Um, because purity culture has done so much damage, I thought it would be great if I could find someone to make the counterpoint who did not grow up in or purport that message. And I found that person in Helen Fisher, 
who I just mentioned. She gave an interview with Krista Tippett in On Being. And I want to play about a minute of that conversation, maybe two minutes for you, where they get to this, this um, question about the, the big dealness of sex. Let's listen. Another thing from your science that I was applying to that is you talked about how casual sex doesn't really remain casual. It's not casual. Um, Unless you're so drunk you can't remember And why? And why? I mean, how you can explain it. It's because of what what is set off in your brain and your body conspires to make you start feeling attached to this person. Or in love. Or Or in love, yeah. Right. And you know, I mean, any when you when you have an orgasm, you get a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, and these are the basic bodily and brain systems for attachment. Right. It's like so, what mothers get when to and they love their babies. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, don't primal. have sex with somebody you don't want to feel something for. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, people can do what they want to do. I'm not in the should business, but the bottom line is, if you don't want to get attached to somebody, it's easier to not sleep with them. <laughs> right, <laughs> because you might end up being attached to somebody who really does not fit into your life. And I think as, again, in this new world, I mean, I grew up in a very uh, conservative, strict um, Southern Baptist, you know, small town where you were saving yourself for marriage. You know? Right. Like, and this was just an absolute. Right. Um, and, and, you know, now I kind of look back on that and see it as— uh, Helpful in a way. Like mm-hmm. it provided boundaries that were good so that you right. didn't. I mean, I actually see these rules at a point. Right. Human animal needs you boundaries. Know. Again, my intention is not to spread condemnation. Um, as I have already disclosed, I can't lecture anybody from a high horse on this particular conversation. Um, and in case it helps you understand that the pastoral staff is human, we're in the process of rewriting our handbook, and one of the topics we are addressing is sexual behavior of employees. And we have decided that something as wooden and simple as don't have sex out of marriage won't do. And it won't do for all the reasons that I've been talking about throughout the sermon so far. Sex demands more thought than that. So we are proposing something that includes the language of consent and mutuality and committed relationship. But I do intend to communicate to you that sex is a big deal. Take Christianity and purity culture out of it. It's a big deal in a biochemical sense for all the reasons that Helen Fisher just named. It's a big deal in a narratival sense because it's the currency of romance. It's a big deal existentially because it's a gateway to intimacy. And it's a big deal destructively because porn is a $12 billion industry in the U.S. Kieran is kind of the resident Old Testament scholar on staff. And um, he said something that I did not know when we were talking about this in staff meeting this week. He told me that rabbis, even rabbis, weren't allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon until they're 30 years old. Think about that. A religion that is uh, reluctant to write or speak the name of God lets their people read about the theophanies and the very concrete appearances of God before they would let them read about sex. So what is the point of Song of Solomon in our Bibles? Like so many books, it can have layers of meanings. Um, In a world where we start with like Plato's um, forms. You remember this, the allegory in the cave where Plato said that we uh, see shadows of these more real objects that then translated into Gnosticism, this early Christianity heresy that said that Jesus didn't actually want to be in a body and left the body because the body was bad. It was a trap on up through Augustine's theology of sex being transmitted through uh, intercourse, transmitting original sin. In that tradition, a Hebrew word 
on the fact that sex is delightful for no other reason that sex is delightful is a welcomed word. Uh, Because God created the world and named it good, a word that sex is delightful in itself is a theological statement. But allegory has long been a tool of the church, so let us say more. Um, Our tradition is one of co-opting practices. The reason we eat bread and we drink wine for the Eucharist moment is because that's a current that naturally has meaning in our lives. It's, it's fun to sit down at a table with your friends. It's nourishing. It's, it's life-giving. The reason we baptize is because there is something about taking a shower that connotes being clean and renewed and refreshed. Wouldn't it be fitting then that this innate tenacious desire that is near universal in experience explain to us something about the nature of God in our relationship with him? So the psalmist says, my beloved says and speaks to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For the winter is now past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. It really is lovely. Uh, This is where it gets tricky. How do you describe in prose something that's intoxicating? It takes poetry, not prose. It takes us using our hearts, not just our head. Take Proverbs 30, 18 and through 19. This intends to be a little more explicit on the topic. Here the author says, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of the snake on a rock, the way of the ship on the high seas and the way of a a man with a young woman. The first three of these describe the last one. An eagle in the high in the sky, it's a feeling of transcendence the sexual experience. The snake who comes out to warm itself on the rock in the day, it's a vulnerable choice because they're exposed to prey from above. And then there's a ship on the high seas, which are thrown back and forth. And so all these play into our images of what healthy sexuality can be. Um, but if I had to summarize all of this into one word, what is this really trying to do? What's the metaphor? Uh, the Book of Common Prayer says that sacraments are an outward symbol of an inward reality. What does the sacrament of sex teach us about God? I think what it uncovers in all of us is that there's this deep existential longing for something more. I think that is the aim of sexual expression, its longing. We all want romance. We all want to be romanced and to be romantic. We all want to pursue and to be pursued. Um, You may not know this, but over the years, UBC has had a few celebrities worship here. Um, My MO is to just greet them and act like they're anybody else, then they go upstairs and write their name on my my resume. One of my points of pride is that UBC is the only church in Waco to ever have a member win the Heisman Trophy. Um, My good friend Bobby Griffin III was probably the best football player ever to play football and go to UBC. Um, If you followed Robert on social media, then then you know that he has a kind of reoccurring mantra, and he posts it all the time, which is this, know your why. I think one of the reasons that Song of Solomon is so potent for us, because as Christians, it answers the question of why. Why are we doing this? Why are we commanded to bear all things? Why do we endure all things? Why do we love? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we ask the question, whom can I be a neighbor to? And the answer is because all of that is wrapped up in a holy longing of something for more, a vulnerable plea within us, a naked plea for that someday after all of this is gone, after the pain has been righted, after the winter is gone, we hear the voice calling of God calling, come my darling, my fair one. The winter is past and the rain is gone. This week, we saw an image that is likely gonna define a moment in history. 
A father in Afghanistan handed his infant child to a U.S. Marine who hoisted that child over razor blade wire because that was the best choice that that father had in that moment. That is a special kind of desperation. My wife and I foster children, and to get ready to do that, we had a lot of different kinds of trainings. Um, and there was a, a couple that sat behind us a few years ago, uh, very sweet. Their names are Eddie and Lauren. Um, a year ago, they adopted a boy and a girl that are eight and 10 out of the foster system, a happy family. Last week, Lauren passed away from COVID, less than 24 hours, uh, Eddie passed away too. And among the layers of grief in that situation, and they are legion, is the reality that these children who were thrust into foster care for God knows what reason lost their second set of parents. And then there's you and your story and your brokenness and your, uh, your sense of failure and your utter lack of energy at the beginning of another semester. And whatever pain you might be dealing with, I just wanted to tell you that God is coming hard after you. God is coming after, hard, hard after you with all that pain and brokenness and God has a word for you and it is this, arise my darling and my love, the winter is gone, the rain is past. I wanna end by giving you an image, and I should apologize before I try this. Um, this is a story that takes place in China. I tried to listen to videos to get pronunciation correct, but I won't. Um, Gao Zingzen was abducted when he was two and a half years old, and um, he was taken from Beijing to, to central China by a woman and her boyfriend, and he was sold, adopted um, by a couple in central China. The reason we know all of this is because in July of this year, 24 years later, Gao was reunited with his biological parents. Uh, there's a video of that reunion if you want to Google it later. Um, part of the reason his story caught national attention is yes, because it had a happy ending, but also because most of China already knew about Gao's story, and that's because Gao Zinzing's biological father, Gao Gangtang, never stopped pursuing his son. After his son disappeared, he began looking for him. He had these flags made, printed up, and he, he uh, mounted them on the back of a motorcycle, and he rode with those flags behind his motorcycle across China. He wore out 10 motorcycles, riding over 300,000 miles, making it through 30 or 34 provinces, and he darn near killed himself creating art and selling it to support it, while his dad um, worked till well past he was 70 to support his son's maddening desire to look for his grandson. And if you have a child, you understand exactly why he would pursue this near impossible task. Uh, during that time of looking, Gao also started a foundation and helped reunite over 100 abducted children with their families. And in 2015, when Gao, uh, little Gao, was 17 years old and still missing, novelist, screenwriter Peng Sin Young heard about Gao's, uh, old Gao's story and made her directional debut in Lost in Love. Um, I want us to watch that trailer. scriptures, we learn that God is father, God is one who loves like a mother, God is shepherd, God is warrior, God is like a hen who gathers her chicks. And today I want you to understand that God is like a desperate father who never gave up looking for his son. Um, like I said, I don't know what kind of brokenness and exhaustion and pain that you're carrying today, but I want you to know that the poetry of every poem, that the romance in every story, that the beauty of every piece of art has all pointed to something transcendent. And there is a clue about your holy longing for all of that and your sexual self. In your naked, vulnerable, ex existential cry, there is a clue about what is and has always been, and that it's if you, if you find yourself at the threshold of hell.
I just want you to know that Jesus is right there with you. God will find you. God has never stopped pursuing you. And that is why we hope. That is why we show up again and again. That is why we move through grief into the possibility of joy because death has been swallowed up in victory. And someday we will collectively hear him speak, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter has passed, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Let's pray. God, we confess that we might be tired and broken, um, that we might feel like we have little to give, and that we're just waiting for winter to end and the rain to stop. And in our confessing, we also are vulnerable enough to say we want to be pursued, we want to be romanced, and we trust that you do that for us and that you are pursuing us, that you are the, you're the poetry in every poem, that you are the beauty in every piece of art, and that you are our longing. And so, Holy Spirit, mapped us on that trajectory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we like to take time and sit in silence and listen to the voice of the Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. Let's listen together.